I'm Stephanie. And I'm Rachel. And this is Neurodivergent Voices, the podcast amplifying the voices and lived experience of the neurodivergent community. We're licensed occupational therapists who specialize in the brain and are neurodivergent ourselves. Join us every so often in this podcast that is for you and by you, the neurodivergent community. If you're interested in learning more about neurodiversity and joining a vibrant community of neuro-inclusive adults, head to our website, divergecommunity.com. Interested in an interview? Email divergecs at gmail.com to get it scheduled. Let's get to it. In this episode, it was my distinct honor to interview Ben Ani, founder of Black Neurodiversity. Ben Ani is a neuroindigenous, queer, trans, pangender psychologist, community organizer, and creative residing in the land of the Tongva people, also known as Los Angeles. Ben Ani holds a master's in autism spectrum disorders and is currently pursuing a clinical psychology doctorate with a specialization in advanced psychological assessment at Saybrook University. Basketball is still life for Ben Ani, volunteer coaching a local youth basketball team aptly named the Princeton Tigers after their undergraduate alma mater. Their dream is to build a retreat, clinic, self-sustaining community centering Black neurodistinct people. You are helping them do that by utilizing the resources and offerings of Black neurodiversity to make that dream a reality. I became aware of Ben Ani's work through Black Neurodiversity on Instagram through their profound Black Futures Month series. In this series, Ben Ani featured 28 interviews with Black neurodistinct individuals, one interview for every day in February, which is Black History Month. Black Neurodiversity centers the experience, history, and voices of Black and Indigenous neurodistinct and neuroindigenous beings. It is our great pleasure to introduce Benani. Listen in. Hello. You're here. You're here. You're real. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you? This is such a cool background. Oh, yeah. It's, um, I guess it would be considered the basement. It's the basement of the house. But I, I yeah. Wow, that is snazzy. Loggers, loggers in the back. I think it also used to be like a little entertaining area too. Because wow. there's like wine situation. But yet yeah, now it's just turned into an office for for me and my roomies. I love it. I love yeah. it. Um, How are you today? You know what? So it's my sad Wednesday, right? But I'm not sad today. I've been really looking forward to our interview and I had a nice phone call and I got some sunshine. So I'm like, is it really Wednesday? <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing? I'm well, I'm well. I um, had a nice, I had enough time to have some time to myself. Cause you know, it's only 9.30 over here. Um, so I, I woke up maybe like an hour ago, but it gave me time to like chill, like have some coffee, take a shower. So it's been it's been a nice slow roll into Wednesday, which is my preference. Oh, I love it so much. Um, I just have two quick asides to tell you before we get started, because I think you're going to chuckle. Um, so the first one, and this is like the most ADHD thing ever, but I'm getting ready for our interview last night and I'm like, 
I don't have a good mic. <laughs> I'm, I'm Googling on the, the interwebs, like, where can I get a mic tonight? And it's 9.30 p.m. my time. And so I see that there's one at Walmart. And so I, I run up to Walmart at 10 p.m. And I, I get this fancy, fancy little mic I have over here. Uh -huh. It's not plugged in because I forgot that my laptop only has one USB port. And I'm mm. on the camera on that. So I don't have any way to use it. But oh, I got wow. <laughs> you need like one of those like things with like multiple ports to plug into your. No. And you know what? I got one of those and then uh, broke it. So here we are. We're just going to make it work. <laughs> well, I was saying I was like, well, if you if you want and you want to use your new mic, it's OK if you want to schedule this to once you have your your settings. It's up to you. I don't I mean, I'm not using. I have a mic that I have yet to use for anything. It's just up in my closet. And I don't really know the particular reason. I don't know, it's because I haven't used it. Maybe yeah. that's why. Yeah, there's a learning curve. And part of me feels like I kind of I kind of like the rawness of it that I'm just like literally the first several interviews were just on my phone. You know, and I feel like there's just something real about it. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say we roll. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I didn't, um, I mean, like, obviously the IG live interviews, those, I mean, as you heard, that wasn't on any specific mic, so. Yeah, yeah. So I've now officially binged your voice for like the last week and a half straight. So I feel <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just, oh, mm. I don't want them to end. So when I saw, like, as soon as I, I think I have like three more interviews to listen to. And wow. now you got your new ones coming out. So I'm like, you got new content just in time for me. It's true. It's true. And the one that I did yesterday was, um, it was great. She was uh, Remy Ray. She, she provided a lot of good back and forth. Um, so this new series is going to be, it's going to be great just to dive into all of the neurodistinctions because I feel like autism ADHD gets way too much attention mm -hmm. um, and I also think it's because people are are more comfortable talking about autism ADHD than they are um, although dyslexia seems to be coming into its own and people not mm, I don't know about children but I know I've seen I see a lot of adults uh, publicly claiming dyslexia. The next one that I'm going to do, which I see being a little bit harder, um, is bipolar. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, because that's that's a very stigmatized um, label and not a lot of people who, at least from what I've seen so far, like they're not as open about that um, diagnosis. Yeah. You know, I, I've thought a lot about why it is that we we hear more about uh, one condition or identity than the other. And I think a big part of that is, is what you said is the stigma. And I also think another, a big part of that is like who's really championing, like whose voices are being heard and who's, who's speaking out about it. Um, I know this is your interview, so I'm gonna get to your questions in just a second, but I just wanted to, to touch on it. Like, so the first diagnosis that I came to know for myself is obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's something that people don't talk about. They don't understand. And I really struggled to even see how that fit in with neurodiversity to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so once I kind of could appreciate that, it's like, hey, any way that your brain functions differently and it affects your quality of life, that that's neurodiversity right there. Yeah. And then being able to get my foot in the door and kind of starting to explore what is this world of neurodiversity allowed me to see, oh, not only am, am I OCD, but I think I'm also autistic and ADHD too, right? But I only thought that autism and ADHD were neurodiversity. So it didn't feel like it fit for me. So I think right. the work that you're doing is so important to kind of expand and explore the breadth of what, mm-hmm. what this really encompasses. So I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, should we get started with some uh, visual descriptions? Sure, sure. I am wearing a white Looney Tunes jersey with a gold flat necklace. I have white AirPods in and my hair is worn naturally and locked close to my head. I am caramel complexioned. And where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from the stolen lands of the Tongva people, also known as Los Angeles. Beautiful. And I am wearing an orange tank top and a loose fitting cream, I don't know, oversized shirt with my hair pulled back and small hoop earrings. And I actually did look up who the indigenous um, people were in my area. And I believe it's the Potawatomi. So hmm. for encouraging that. So which yeah. also known as Celine, Michigan. So. Um, can you share a little bit about yourself? I don't even think I asked for your name yet. So can you share your name and a little bit about yourself and how you spend your time? Sure. So my name is Benani, and I am currently a full-time doctoral student um, getting my PhD in clinical psychology. I uh, spend my time between schoolwork, which is right now a lot of reading and writing, and I create uh, content for Black neurodiversity, whether or not it is conducting, well, most recently I've gotten into conducting interviews that highlight the lived experiences of Black neurodistinct people and um, really excited about my latest project, which is called Exploring Neurodiversity, uh, where I am going to be interviewing um, different people in the Black neurodiversity community um, who experience um, different neurodistinctions uh, so that we are not um, you know, confining ourselves to just autism, ADHD, which tends to get uh, most attention. I would like to explore every single neurodiversity, sorry, every single neurodistinction under the neurodiversity umbrella. And we're starting with um, dyslexia. And um, that's been really great. Just uh, especially starting with lived experience, I think is so important as opposed to starting with say the DSM or um, I don't know, any other book that tries or attempts to um, put definitions and characterizations to neurodistinction, um, which is another um, activity that I spend a lot of time on, which is really like dismantling, undoing, redefining, reframing what 
um, neurodistinction is, what the experience is, whether or not it is um, reframing behaviors that um, have often been and, and historically pathologized, um, such as um, isolation, for example. I did a post on something called a purposeful isolation, which takes uh, um, us through just the the different types of ways that neurodistinct people um, isolate, that there are many different reasons why, whether or not it's rejuvenating, whether or not it is uh, restoration, uh, strategizing. And I came up with names for all these different types of things. And so language is another thing I spend a lot of time on. Um, it is one of my special interests for sure. I am currently in the process of creating a dictionary that um, it has not been released yet, but I am up to 200 terms and they're all within the neurodiversity world. And uh, because there's always, um, at this point, because neurodistinct people are becoming more public and vocal about their experience, they are now claiming and reclaiming and also creating um, new words that need to be incorporated into the lexicon of, of neurodiversity, which has been for so long dominated by um, the medical paradigm, by parents, by people who are attempting to um, explain us. And, um, and so I find a lot of power in language, um, while also understanding that um, language can be very limiting. So I don't use it in a way to limit, but as a way to uh, provide access to understanding myself, as well as providing access for others to have language to explain their experience, because it is important in a, in a very language dominant society, um, which I'm learning about a lot through this series of dyslexia, that you know having the words, having the language to describe how you're feeling, what's happening um, is often the quickest way to get um, support or understanding or care um, or consideration, depending on where you are. Um, and how else do I spend my time? I love playing basketball still, which is another special interest of mine. I have been quite, um, since I can remember, since I first picked up a basketball, it provides a lot of my, I put a lot of stimming into basketball as a child before even realizing that's what I was doing. Um, <laughs> spent hours and hours and hours just dribbling, just mm. loving, just loving the feeling of, the basketball and the flicking of my wrist and the different ways that I could flick it and and it, it still be seen as like cool because like I, wow she could <laughs> she could really dribble that ball. It's like well I've been practicing for eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> little did you know. <laughs> little did you know, right? So I still play basketball um twice a week pickup and then I also uh, volunteer coach. A, a youth basketball team in my in my town of little seven and eight year olds, my little team. Um, yeah, that's how I spend my days most of the time. I love that so much. And there were like five different things that jumped out at me that I'm like, oh, I want to ask more about that. Um, and I was able to jot three of them down through my, my executive dysfunctioning. Um, but I guess the one that kind of stood out to me the most that I want to follow up on, it's so clear to me that language is something that you're passionate about. And it's also clear to me that it is a 
a really strong gift or skill that you have. Um, and it's kind of, it's interesting how, you know, I'm, I'm kind of jumping the gun here and maybe we'll come back around to this, but I think this idea of language and language use and communication is something that in a lot of ways and kind of the, the mainstream narrative conflicts with this idea of neurodistinction, neurodiversity, right? We don't think about this community as being effective communicators or being able to communicate at all. And I think that just your presence your attention to the language use and the intentions behind it is kind of like it's taking that idea and just kind of chucking it out the window. It's like, yeah, some people communicate differently. Communicating differently isn't inherently bad, though. It's just different, right? And I think that you're kind of a beautiful exemplification of that. Um, and I also wanted to follow up on this term of neurodistinction because it's not one that I was familiar with until I started following your work. So I'm curious what neurodistinction means for you and how you see that as being different from neurodiversity or neurodivergent. Yeah, so I actually wrote a post about this and I'm just gonna read it straight from the post because I feel like it it captures what I feel because I, well, I wrote this. There you go. Um, and so the post is entitled uh, Neurodivergent versus, uh, versus Neurodistinct, Language to Consider. How we describe ourselves is important. The language we use to identify ourselves can either empower or reinforce systems of oppression. Ableism tells us we diverge from the norm, that we are not normal, quote unquote. The belief in a normal is what perpetuates violence and exclusion of those who experience such divergence. Normal only considers one way of being, one way of thinking, one way of communicating. To diverge from that norm elicits othering, marginalizing exclusion. When I came upon the term neurodistinct by Tim Goldstein, I was relieved to have finally found a term that did not perpetuate neuroableism. Mm -hmm. Neuroableism, um, is and actually i want to make sure that i also get their name in here um neuroableism was coined by julia felice um is a special kind of ableism just for neurodistinct folks the one that tells us that our sensory experience social cognition and communication are wrong abnormal and need to be treated or cured internalizing neuroableism can look like calling ourselves neurodivergent we do the work of the oppressors for them now, some people may say, but I'm not, but I'm not normal and I don't want to be. Sure, but that's not the point. The point is normal does not exist. What does exist is us, distinct and unique beings. So along with that, just like it, it said in this in this post, it was one of those things, just like when I've I just recently heard of another word that made me say, like, ooh, wow, yes. Neuro uh, neuroconformity which now I, I know I no longer use the word neurotypical because neurotypical, I, I've been saying for a while that neurotypicality doesn't exist. It's just people who can mask as capitalists. Yeah. Um, Oof. But, but All right, that had to get with me for a second. But. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, wait, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I've been saying that for years. And then 
Neuroconformity popped up into somewhere on my Instagram, I think from my friend Aziachu, and I was like, uh, they had sent it to me, and I was like, oh yes, neuroconformist. That that's it. That that's exactly what it is. And so when I saw neurodistinct, I never liked calling myself neurodivergent. I didn't for all the reasons that I just said. It didn't sit right in me when I said it. It didn't feel right. Um, but something about neurodistinct, um, yes. Just from just from the word like distinct, I because even within different manifestations of of autism or ADHD or OCD or dyslexia, like you are even distinct within those experiences because there's a spectrum of of experiences uh, of between like in between like intra in between yeah. these 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 labels so. Neurodistinction for me is really about understanding, you know, getting to so many concepts around like, you know, when you've met one neurodistinct person with this experience, you've met one neurodistinct person with this experience and it doesn't speak for all. And it also gets to the fact that um, I do experience a world that has been, largely unique to me because of the way these different things interact and intersect in my identity and my body being black being transgender being southern being gendered being um and then you know the other neurodistinct identities that i have being autistic being adhd experiencing depression experiencing anxiety so yeah it, it being queer, being a part of the LGBT community, like all of these things result in a very distinct experience for me. And so I really love um, that term. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's, it's a term that I want to adopt for myself too, because it is something that I feel resonates um, with my identity too. And, and I appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate you starting to share a little bit about kind of this intersection, these multiple distinctions that you that you carry and that you embody and identify. And I, I wanted to know, gosh, I'm just really going off the chart here. I'm not following any of the questions I wrote for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, so bad. it's all good. It's all good. Um, but I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit more about I don't know really how to frame it because you have so many marginalized identities within this one human body that you have. And I don't even know if it's possible to tangle out like your experience from one versus the other. Um, but can you try? <laughs> but, uh, oh, can I try? You know, I think it's not even a matter. It's, that's that's I like the way that you posed that. That was a very neurodistinct way of asking that question. Um, it's like fill in the blank with what do you think with this with what you think I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah I I do believe I understand what you're trying to say. You know, um, the people around you and your environments uh, force you to choose, and they force you to choose by how they perceive you because based on where you are, whatever they see either as most threatening or as most beneficial 
that's what they will either pander to or will uplift. And so I think a lot of my identity finding and excavating came once I became more, honestly, very late 20s, early 30s, because the pandemic put me out of the eye and the perception of what other people were telling me that I was. Mm. Up until then, which which is which is honestly really what masking a big part of masking is like. You choose a mask that fits what everyone wants from you, and and so that's why you know you, I don't believe. Anyone really? I mean, let me speak for myself. Mm. I don't. I know for a fact that I haven't ever had just one mask, and that's because behind that mask, there was so much depth and there was so much um, quote unquote, I don't even wanna say difference because once again, that difference puts the standard at your white cis head male. Right. Um, I think it's more about whose experience is being considered important. And for, I don't know, however hundreds of thousands of years we've decided that white, white cis had men, their experience are the standard. And that's what, and then anything different from that, mm. anything not that is different. Mm. And so it comes out and that comes out through um, schooling with teachers. Like I didn't have, my first black teacher was at Princeton. My first black professors were at Princeton, my freshman year. Cornell West, was my first black male teacher and my first black female teacher was Amani Perry, which that's really cool, but also really sad because going 12 years being taught by white men and women, they certainly without me knowing looked at me at a certain way and they looked at my, as my intelligence as something to prop up. It was never any sort of uplifting about my identity as a black student in their room. And so what did I do for most of my life, but look to obtain um, more uh, love and care and attention for my intelligence and my, um, you know, I've always been a very articulate speaker. I was, I was very much hyperlexic, which is just, you know, hyperverbal big vocab from a young age. Um, and with that, which was why I find it funny that they're saying, which is, which is true, neurodistinction is a, is a, is a uh, spectrum, but oftentimes neurodistinct people have to learn so much in order to move in a room that we end up overstanding and overlearning. So our communication becomes so refined if you have if you have access to that it becomes so you know i used to really um applaud myself for my ability to be um a chameleon and to and i used to say this all the time and my ability to make white people comfortable mm-hmm. and that came from being put in a very small box of what my identity could hold and as I got older, 
And I went into spaces that were more, I don't know about inclusive, but just showed me that there were other ways of being embraced. I started to see like, cause it was always there, but like stepping into my queerness in college. Um, there were so many points in my life where I was coming out to myself uh, before I did any sort of coming out to the world. Um, and there's, I'm sure as, as a lot of people can, can relate, like you do that, you do have to come out to yourself first. Like that's the first step in order to, 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 to realize or to integrate, um, a part of yourself that is, um, wanting to be expressed and wanting to, to, to interact with the outside world and not just be contained um, or masked. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, to, to, to wrap that all up in a bow, um, these identities allow me to do, are really what I think makes black neurodiversity so profound is that black people, queer people, tra uh, trans people, we have viewpoints and these and these are the identities that I hold. And then of course there are people who would say like immigrants, firstborn, uh, first generation, um, uh, I'm trying dark skinned, fat, like yeah. there are still even further marginalized people than me. But I am able to see things from viewpoints that centered people will never see. Right. Um, and because so I capture an experience that holds every, um, not everyone, I do my best to try to hold as many people as possible. And that's really what Black neurodiversity is about. It's about that expansion of, of identity, of understanding how neurodiversity can move in the world. So I think that answered your question. That sure did. <laughs> I, I need just a second because... I take a little more time to collect my thoughts. <laughs> All good. But so I guess, I guess the first thing is I was really taken by this concept of you wearing multiple masks. And I think that's really profound. And I think everyone should read your article in Forbes about unmasking in the workforce. I'm just plugging that in there. Because you bring forward such an important concept of it is a privilege that not everyone has or ever will have to be able to unmask. And I think that's something I shared with you the first time that you were that we were speaking is me trying to come to terms with how can I unmask and grieve that process in a way that respects and elevates that other people don't have that privilege or won't be able to unmask in that same way. I think I said like, woe is me that I don't feel immediately understood and comfortable in every circumstance I'm in, right? So like, how, how, how can I acknowledge that there is, there is some real grieving I have that I haven't been my true self in, in, in a lot of ways, but my ability to recognize that and to be accepted because I, I wear just one mask is is in of itself a privilege um 
So I think that's a, that's such a big thing. And I also wanted to add, um, you made a comment about priding yourself or, or I'm not sure the word you used, um, about being able to make white people feel comfortable. And that really resonated with me because I think something that has pulled me in so much to the work that you're doing. Um, yeah, I'm OCD and I have special interests and I hyperfixate. So that's pretty common, but um, it's not often that I'm like super in on like any one person on social media or anything like that. Um, but what's really resonated with me is that everything's made me feel uncomfortable. And I think that's really important. And I'm someone that typically shies away from uncomfortable situations, as I think most people do. Um, but in being uncomfortable is like that's where the that's you have to be right. That's where that's that means that you're getting closer to better understanding or better being able to support. And so, like, I'm just continually like looking for opportunities now that make me uncomfortable because this whole experience for me of learning my own identity has been uncomfortable and yet way more comfortable than I could ever imagine for other people. You know what I'm, do you know what I mean? Like this, this contradiction of like discomfort, but also cushy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think, um, you know, it's it's important for more than important. Whatever whatever word is more important than important. I don't know, yeah. critical. Critical, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> it's I I I believe I know it's critical for um every person, not even just white people, but most definitely white people and people who hold whiteness mm. to come to this conclusion that their discomfort is necessary uh, for people who don't look like them to gain greater comfort because there's a baseline I mean just in being black that I was really getting at in that Forbes article where it's like sure if I unmask my neurodistinction, for whatever reason, that is permitted and cared for in that space. My blackness, still most of the time, in all of its unmasked blackness, um, is not. And that comes with, you know, people don't, people often don't think about masking also including your thoughts. Mm. And speaking and being honest about those thoughts. So, like, you know, most of the time when I'm walking around, or, or you know, I, I live in Echo Park, which is West LA. I'm so melanin deprived, mm -hmm. and I and I and I and the, and because of that, there is a level of unsafeness that I feel in walking around my neighborhood. Like I don't feel comforted by not knowing that I'm not around other black people. Mm. Um, I know that there's a comfort in, in white people and whatever, or, you know, um, whatever racial makeup being around their own, there is. Yeah. And so speaking to your point, 
what I really think it is, is that white neurodistinct people need to be unmasking around their brothers, their sisters, their uncles, their aunts, mm. their grandparents, their cousins, because these are the people that are um, oppressing us out in the world. Like mm. these are the, the doctors and the lawyers and the service providers and the, you know, the teachers who are going out into the world. And if you, as their white family member, are still unable to unmask and really live in discomfort around them and your own family, what do you think that does for the people who aren't their family? And so there is a time and there is a place for white neurodistinct people and to be held in the correct place, right? Like it wouldn't be, unless I'm like, you know, unless I'm your, your providing a service and I'm being paid for this, there's absolutely no reason why um, white people, whether or not it's going through an anti-racist journey or going through an anti-ableist journey, there's no reason why any of that should be held other than in the white space. Like mm -hmm. that is conversations mm -hmm. for your white sistren, brethren, teachers, friends. You process it there and you learn mm -hmm. and you educate yourselves from the experiences and the resources. You don't interject and share your experiences. That's mm -hmm. not the place for it. It's, mm -hmm. just, it's just not. Because as black, brown, neuroindigenous people, we're quite aware of what you all's experiences are. There are canons and canons of literature that we have been forced to learn about the white experience. You go on TV, neurodistinction is still very much a white experience. You go on Twitter, go look up the hashtag neurodiversity, look up the hashtag ADHD, ADHD, white. Yeah. And so it's not to say that it's not important, but there's a time and a place and a space. Yeah. And I also feel like in public spaces, when we are speaking to neurodiversity, it's important for white people to find ways to, to uplift and, and share the experiences of others, of, of, of black, of brown, of people who are not given the spotlight. Because you're more likely to read the experience of a black neurodistinct person on a white person's page because all the black neurodistinct creators are are uh, shadow banned. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's, I would never not want my white neurodistinct peers to process and to give time for and care for their own unmasking journey. It is required. It is, it is, it is required for anyone else to, right? Mm -hmm. It's just how, you do it and it's and, it, and it's also and obviously you're not going to be perfect but it's also it, no one's and no one's asking anyone to be perfect it's about being um I, I think it's a lot about being honest and it's about you know if a mistake does happen being open to to know being open to being told why it was wrong because a lot of times i've seen it's only happened a few times on my page, but white neurodistinct people will come through and they'll be like, but, but, and I'm like, whoa, mm -hmm. this is 
look at look at the name on the building. It says Black Nerds. <laughs> right. <laughs> You need to scoot on back. And then and and you know, my community will come through and you know, they'll be like, What you this isn't what this is about. You need to think, you know, like and and I also I really try hard not to like even in those moments, I try to not go on the attack. And I can't say the same for my community, but I myself, even when white neurodistinct people talk out the side of their neck or step out in a line where they don't need to be. I'm still, I still try my best to meet them with patience mm. and meet them with compassion if they give me the time. Now, if you decide to continue to be rude, well, then I'm gonna tell you about yourself because you haven't given me, <laughs> and, this, and this, once I've taken those steps, then I'm like, all right, well, now you're not gonna, now, since you're not in the room of you and you've excused yourself, which is a privilege, right? I'm gonna go ahead and talk about you. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a delicate dance. It's a delicate dance for sure. I'm uh, getting overstimulated by my barking dog right now. Found <laughs> <laughs> thought, and then it went <laughs> just <laughs> out the window. But I so I. I'm so appreciative of the opportunity. I know you don't create, you don't create your material for people like me. And I, and I acknowledge that, but I also so appreciate, sorry, it's probably driving you crazy too. The dog barking. No, I actually don't hear, I don't hear it as much. Okay, good. You can hear me yeah. though. It's not cutting it. Yeah, I can, no, okay. I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Um, I appreciate the opportunity that even though this isn't created for me, I can still benefit from hearing your, your lived experience and the lived experiences of others. And what I so appreciate about um, the Black Futures Month is the level of candor, candor and realness that I don't know I would have had access to or opportunity to hear such raw lived experience. Um, and I think that's incredibly valuable that you were able to provide you and other creators like yourself are able to provide a platform where not only is there room for their voice but they're celebrated right they come out with applause and it, you know the snaps all the way it's just this i don't know i feel like it's really a gift that you've, you've provided to your community that has ripple effects um outside of your community too so i know when we first spoke, he said, like, I came into this game trying to educate white people, like, how can you support us, right? Like, I've grown up around this my whole life, and I know how to make white people feel comfortable. But at the end of the day, you can only bring the horse to the water, you can't make them drink, you can't make people care. And I really respect you taking this stance of, I'm going to support my community. I'm, if, if you happen to pick something up along the way because of the work that I'm doing, supporting my community, then fantastic. And if not, it's not my responsibility. I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth or if I interpreted what you said correctly, but I really admire that because I think that, I think that's such, that's such important work to be done. And that for individuals of, many marginalizations they feel this weight this burden 
like you said, like I represent all people, not all people, but a lot of people, those on the outskirts of society. And so that weight that you carry because of that, you didn't ask for that on your shoulders, right? And and I think she's done. <laughs> so um, I'm appreciative of that. Um, I, we've talked a lot about uh, this idea of neurodistinction and this intersection of race and other marginalized identities. But I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't talked about yet that you kind of wish more people would understand or start considering about neurodistinction um, or other marginalized identities. Um, I guess most recently in the past couple of months, um, some messages that I've come to or messaging that I've come to around around that question. Um, I really, I'm not a fan of the um, superpower narrative around neurodiversity. I think it's actually ableist <laughs> because it doesn't give room for to just be because even in, in being a a and this would be very triggering for a black woman because there is a archetype um the strong black woman the the super the superwoman which is a historical archetype where black women are seen as um strong and resilient and can get through anything and just how do they do what they do it's a it's a super it's a superhero narrative and it doesn't leave a lot of room for the human mm. and being human um is not about having superpowers it's not about having and and oftentimes a superpower is something that is seen as beneficial, right? Like mm. villains, villains in stories about, you know, in Marvel, whatever, you don't call them superheroes, you call them villains, even though they also have powers, but those powers mm. are seen as not helpful or evil, right? Mm. And so there's still this categorizing of, well, are they a useful neurodistinct person? <laughs> Can they do anything special? Right. Um, um, what's, you know, what's great about them? And it's like, what's great about them is that they're here, they, that they exist, like, stop there, period. And so that's, that's one narrative that I, I would really, because, you know, Proud Family, for example, I grew up watching. And in this most recent rendition, one of the twins is, autistic and it's not coded they straight up say okay. they go through a whole they go to the doctor's office they show the the diagnosis all that but then what people didn't realize is that at the end of the episode because they did an amazing job i was like wow way to go um wait, wait, good job proud family but then at the end they just they couldn't tie it together they couldn't they at the very end you see the autistic twin floating in the air 
Oh. And there's like, no. there's like, there's like lightning coming from him, and there's like things slit, and it's like, no, what? <laughs> Why? You did so great. No one else in the show has superpowers. Proud family ain't never been known as be proud family is just a, a regular day of the black family. Why is this autistic baby now floating in the air and doing telekinesis and got lightning? So I was like, goodness gracious, once again. The autistic child, the autistic person has to be this, ooh, wow, look what they can do. And so mm. I I wanted, I want, I want, and this is mainly not even for like non, uh, you know, neuroconformist. This is for neurodistinct people to know that like, you don't have to be like being special or like, like if you, I love this, <laughs> I love this term. If you want to sit on a rock, for the rest of your life, go ahead and rock it. <laughs> I'm like, like if that's what you want, you you and you even you don't even have to be the best rocker. No. You just rock how you want to rock, you know. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> right. So that that's that's a big one. And then the last the last one, I would say is um that neural distinction is something that stays with us for the entirety of our lives, that we don't grow out of it, that it just changes. Um, the neurodistinct kid's real cute. And then that cuteness factor just gets less and less every year. And then compassion turns to impatience and patience turns to, to, um, to anger. Anger turns to resentment. Mm. And so there's, there's, there's this that they're not gonna grow, we, not they, we are not gonna grow out of something. And that even within that, from day to day, our abilities and what is disabling us at any given moment also changes. Just like those who use wheelchairs, some people need a wheelchair every time they need to move or to go somewhere. Some people need a wheelchair a few days of the week or based on when they're having maybe a flare up of whatever they're experiencing or stress or who knows. It's not, it, the point is, is that it's no, it's no one else's job or, or God, God gave no one else a job to judge what other people need at any given time. Mm. Mm. So, and I don't even think God do that to be quite, <laughs> to be quite honest. So wow yeah mm. i love it i don't really have anything more to say this is this is about you and i think you've you've just really you've killed it <laughs> you know i mean thank you is there anything you want to ask me like throwing this out there no you have any questions for me before we go or, or I don't know. You don't have to, but like I'm like open fire <laughs> if you want. Um, sure. I'm curious. What what would you say um, makes you um, uncomfortable, or like what's a post that you can remember where you where you were like where you had that reaction, and do you know what it was that made you uncomfortable? Oh, such a good question. I think it's kind of this 
this unfamiliarity with this concept of being othered. Mm. Like there wasn't a single post. It's just this idea of being a minority for once in my life, like being, even though like I am neurodistinct myself, the, it ends there. Right. Um, and so I think that was for me just a novel experience and one that I'm just kind of embracing sitting with. You know, I grew up in an area that was predominantly white, um, relatively conservative. Like I felt like a bit of an, an outcast there. Like I can remember, um, you know, kind of getting bullied for being democratic in high school. And like that was such the the atypical there. But I'm like, that's that's kind of the extent of my experience of being othered outside of, yeah, in some environments, my gender or my appearance as youthful have provided some moments of friction. I've been privileged in so many ways, and I've really um, benefited from the opportunity to and these are brief. This is not even this is not even a real taste of what it's like to be othered. But just in those hour and a half where I'm just sitting there with you guys as as the other is kind of uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But in a beautiful kind of way for me anyway. Yeah, I could see that. I think that, honestly, that's what a lot of white people are um, running from, because to feel in, to be minoritized, especially knowing how and the ways in which white people have minoritized people. I think the discomfort comes from that. Yeah. Like I've, I know what, what we, my ancestors, these structures have done to marginalize and I've seen the othering and so to to be put in a in a place um, in proximity to that, um, yeah, that discomfort makes a lot of sense. There was one question that you had that you didn't ask me that I do want to answer though. Your strengths and accomplishments? No. Oh, there's multiple questions. <laughs> oh my gosh, I went rogue. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the conversation was great, so it's not even a thing, right? Okay. Um, but where I see black neurodiversity in five, ten years. Yes. Yeah. Because I really I really love I really love dreaming and I think dreaming is really important um for um movement. Like I'm not I don't I don't plan to be and I haven't really for the most part in my life, like when I say I wanna do something Except for some of the the, the, the things I'm going to share now, um, I put effort and prayer um, to accomplishing that, which like makes it more than a dream. I think it makes it mm, more of a vision, mm. I would say. Mm. So I guess I'll answer like my vision for Black neurodiversity in five years. Um, would be, we have, although I'm still trying to learn the difference between like 501c3 and nonprofit like that, um, 
but I um, see Black neurodiversity operating as a as a nonprofit, um, receiving grants that allow for its continuation year to year, that enable me to um, build out um, the offerings that I've been providing um, solely from myself. Um, so like our check-ins, our online superior peer groups, peer, peer support groups. There are not a lot of intersectional online peer support groups for neurodistinction people. And so I would love to be offering those daily while also training people to be peer support um, leads. Because I do think that that, when the, when the, when the um, therapists and psychologists really realize that community-led interventions is the way for neurodistinct people, it will get more cred. Mm. Um, and that peer support, I really think is the only way that we can heal um, our our traumas and our, um, as well as share in the joys and not being pathologized all the time um, within our neurodistinct experiences and being affirmed. Um, so really building out that as like a robust, um, space where there are multiple offered in a day and there's I would love to have a um, trigger warning for uh, people who don't want to be here um, a lot of people in the community um, experience that and I don't have the capacity to help everyone in my community who experiences that but we need something for black and indigenous um, people who don't want to keep chugging um, I also want to, um, build out a, um, a space, a retreat space, and this is in five years. I think it's doable in five, five years, but, uh, to provide, um, yearly, maybe twice a year retreats for, um, neurodistinct people that um, offers both sort of like a camp fun aspect, a healing aspect, and also just a social aspect. Um, and, you know, because a lot of us have met online and haven't had that opportunity to, to be IRL. And obviously, with the pandemic still very much going on, like IRL has been difficult, but there are ways um, to still provide that community in real life. And I think retreats um in just like very like green lush open spaces with like mountains in the distance and water that we can go down to and like um just like rock it right and um yeah that's and i and that's that's five years and so 10 years um actually no also in that five years with these series that I'm doing, these interviews, I want Black neurodiversity to be picked up on some sort of like Hulu, Netflix, some sort of streaming where I can bring these interviews to larger audiences. Because I know these conversations are good. And I know that like the things that we're getting at are still not being talked, on a, talked about on a grander scale. So I would love to, to, to be able to put like a real production 
budget behind, um, you know, doing either the Explore Neurodiversity series or the Black Futures um, series. And lastly, 10 years. Ooh, I hadn't thought about 10 years. Mm. 10 years. Um, 10 years, where do I see Black neurodiversity? Wow. I'll be 40. You know, 10 years, we have like brick and mortar physical locations that provide support for Black Black and Indigenous nursing people and helping with, um, if they want assessment, getting services, providing trainings for uh, service providers, psychologists, for uh, clinicians, for teachers, um, accreditation systems for businesses that says like, yes, Black Neurodiversity says that this is a safe space for you. Um, Yeah, that's as far as I think I can, wow. Yeah, 10 years, that seems like a book. A book. A book. That's kind of already what works from what I was listening to yesterday. <laughs> right, right. It's it's it is it is. I do see. I do see. That might be a that might be a five year. That might be between five and ten. But I, I definitely see a book. Mm-hmm. Um, even if even if it's 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 something sort of like uh, my friend Marcia did with Black Brilliant and Dyslexic, where it's putting together. Um, stories from the community in one's place, and because that book is absolutely brilliant. Um, I would love for that to be my first book. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. You know, if these first three-ish years have been any indication, I think you're right on track. And I I had goosebumps the whole time you're telling me your vision, because I just know that you're I just know you're going to see this through, and it's going to be like crazy that I got to talk to you before everything before you changed the world. You know what I mean? So I'm honored. So thank you for oh, for me. <laughs> thank you. This was this was a pleasure. I enjoyed myself. Well good. I did too. I really did too. Alrighty. Well I never know how to sign out. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And I usually do a little salute because I'm awesome. <laughs> Uh, Have a wonderful day, okay? (laughs) You too, you too. Thanks so much, Benani. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Neurodivergent Voices. Interested in an interview? Email divergecs at gmail.com to get it scheduled. If you've been enjoying Neurodivergent Voices and want to support this kind of work moving forward, please go to divergecommunity.com to check out our membership options as well as our monthly webinars. When you subscribe to Neurodivergent Voices, rate it and share it with friends. More people get access to it. So thanks for doing that.